taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning and welcome to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Alex Scovran about his new book of poetry, Letters from the Periphery. Um, thank you for coming on the program, Alex. Oh, thank you, Di. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes, well, um, I really love your new book. It's got a lot of very diverse material and it's very deeply felt. Now, I'll just go a little bit into your autobiography. Um, Alex is the author of six previous collections, most recently Towards the Equator, New and Selected Poems from 2014, and that was shortlisted in the Prime Minister's Literary Awards. His other books include a prose novella, The Poet, 2005, which was the joint winner of the FAW Christina Stead Award for Fiction, and a volume of short stories, The Man Who Took to His Bed, from 2017. Alex's work has been translated into several languages, and his numerous public readings include appearances in China, Serbia, India, Ireland, Macedonia, Portugal, and on Norfolk Island, and he lives in Melbourne. Now, there's quite a few different forms of poetry in your new collection. There's some autobiographical work and some more reflective pieces, and there's even some pieces where you imagine yourself as other characters in history. Yes. So tell me a little bit about uh, how you put the collection together. Well, it's made up of poems that... Um were written, most of them, over over the past, uh, I suppose, 10 years or so. But there are some earlier ones as well. There are a few earlier ones. Um, I guess, like all poets, I, I gather what what um, constitutes a kind of a, a harvest of recent contemporary poems, and I try to arrange them in an order that might make sense, that creates a kind of a... Uh, sort of a narrative arc, but also thematically uh, to have them speak to each other and perhaps resonate off each other. I like to have a variety of forms in a collection and a contrast of different styles and voices and and theme and um, subject matter. Um, but on the whole, I like it to, to have a trajectory that will perhaps please and interest the reader. Yes, well, I, I really appreciate the diversity and the craftsmanship. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you started writing poetry and, and when was that? Well, I started writing poetry in English because I wasn't born in Australia. But I started writing really in a, on a regular basis when I was 20, in, um, when I was at university. But when I wrote poetry in those years, I was writing it straight into a a notebook by longhand, just one after another, whenever I felt like it. I, I didn't have any notion of wanting to edit or to put separate poems on separate pages. 
I was just doing doing it because um, I wanted to, and uh, it was something I enjoyed, and it was uh, stimulating. I've, I've always loved words and language, and I suppose it was inevitable that I would uh, write poetry. But that took about 10 years or so, and there were about 500 poems in in those first 10 or so years, which I just wrote in, into those notebooks. And it was later on, uh, in the late 70s and early 80s, that I started to uh, edit the poems, to put them on separate pages, type them out, and to start submitting. I did start submitting in the late 70s, but only very, very uh, few times, because I didn't have a very strong notion of poetry publishing at all. And what was the poetry world in Melbourne like in the late 70s? I mean, how did you find the right places to submit to? You know, was there a community of poets of like mind? Well, I should mention that I came to Melbourne in, in late 79. So um, I came from Sydney. I was living in Sydney. So my writing of poetry began in Sydney um, in, in the 60s, in the late 60s. When I came to Melbourne, I, yes, I slowly began to discover other poets and something of the community, but it took a little while. Um, I first was submitting to a few journals. Actually, my very first submission was from Sydney, one of my very first, and it was to New Poetry. No, it was, it was Poetry Australia, rather. And at that time, Les Murray was, um, was editing. I sent a bundle of poems representing those first early 10 years, of, of my poetry writing, but, you know, towards the, the later phase of that, the poems I thought were uh, good enough to try to submit. And Les Murray eventually sent back the bundle of poems with a wonderful comment. He said, I can't quite like these enough, though there are felicities here. Yeah. <laughs> and so on. So that was, mm. that was in one way, was uh, a rejection, but in another it was uh, encouragement. Mm. And I didn't take it as, as a rejection because I knew that um, I had a fair way to go and I needed to uh, refine not only what I was writing but um, my whole approach to, uh, to poetry if I wanted to, uh, to be serious about it. And slowly I began to uh, do those things I mentioned, to edit the poems more thoroughly and to, um, to start submitting. So in answer to your question... A few years after I came to Melbourne, I began to discover the uh, poetry scene and uh, started, started to uh, meet a few people and I was invited to readings and that's how it began. Yeah, wonderful. Well, let's look at one of the autobiographical poems in the collection and I'm guessing this might have been in your Sydney days, Carousel Days. Would you like to read that? Okay. Carousel days, and this is yes, this is this is uh, this is set in uh, round about well in the late sixties. Um, I should mention by way of background that when I was at university, doing an arts degree in the University of New South Wales in the sixties, all arts students had to do a course called History and Philosophy of Science, years one and two, and in first year, the subject matter was astronomy and cosmology, and and this poem. Well, comes out of that period when we um, even occasionally went up to the roof of a building to, uh, with a tutor to do some stargazing and to learn about the, uh, the different constellations. Okay, carousel days. And one evening, 
constellating the dots from the top deck of civil engineering, my gaze skimmed beyond Delta Orionis, and I suddenly detected a tiny shifting of the sky's slant, an opening that said, look hard enough into us drizzling stars and you will discover more of yourself than if you drank from an endless chalice of the choicest rum. And I forgot about the fragrant maiden 18 next to me, myself only just crossing 20. Forgot the spring night's rooftop seminar, transit of the morning star, all the lecture notes folded in my bag, the poems fattening my little black book with the bright red spine. And I stared like some ridiculously transported thing, a boy who disturbed for a mere moment and twisted some key, glimpsing a doorway to a language meant he was certain for him alone. And each waking minute in Carroll days to come, he would search to regain it, to translate what upon that star-struck roof had stung his soul. He is there still, translating it yet. Extraordinary experience that you've conveyed there. Yes, it was a kind of a moment of communion with the universe. Hmm. Um, and it represents um, it's a kind of meditation on on adolescent opening up to the greater world, mm. the night sky, the fabulous constellation, driving home of the wonder of the universe, uh, along with the personal imagination and a sort of a formative sense of identity. Yes, and, you know, the possibility of some kind of awareness that goes beyond reason and logic and books and, you know, texts and seminars, some kind of experience of nature that is just some opening exactly it's that wonder um of, and and i never lost it mm. um i i still look up at the sky or uh, contemplate some of the amazing things in this world and and um that, that wonder is still there and also the way it links up the way the if you like the objective world links links up with something more metaphysical than something that is a bit transcendent. That's part of the whole um, notion, I think. Yeah. Now, there's another uh, poem that conveys a sense of wonder in nature uh, that's also rather unusual, which is only the music. I'm wondering Uh if you might like to read that. Sure. Only the music. Each cloud contains the history of the world. If you gaze long enough into the eye of the moon, you will guess the truth of creation. Do not stare into the sun, for you will be blinded with brilliant half-truths, dazzling mirages that you will carry like a false faith for all the rest of your days. Be on guard against the wind. It carries the seeds of the death of each civilization, even your own and the implosion of your belief will leave you lame, prone to promptings of the divine. A boulder you will unearth, upend, to discover the crawling cosmos beneath. Always respect the word of birds who know everything but sing riddles with eloquent wings. Above all, be vigilant of those about you who would offer you the language of the sky, would deafen your soul for one sip of infinity, would lead you into the labyrinths of becoming, 
the canals of those regions where no water flows, only tears and ancient blood, where the stone strata rise up into limitless black, descend in dizzy spirals deep below the circles of the underworld. I tell you this in confidence, knowing that you will forget. Go now, and remember only the music concealed behind the illusion that you know yourself. It's a wonderfully mysterious poem, you know. It's um, hints at all kinds of layers of meaning, and uh, yes. it's a really marvellous poem. So uh, congratulations. That was some shakuhachi music by Anne Norman and Larry Tyrrell from the CD Haven. And I'm speaking today to Alex Scovran about his new book of poetry, Letters from the Periphery. Now, there's there's a couple of others uh, that I'd like to get to. Now, you are right uh, in the first person, but adopting the identity of historical figures in a couple of poems. Uh, One of them is about the Trojan horse in the poem Prognosis. I'm wondering if you'd like to read that. Okay. Prognosis. And it's subtitled 1185 BCE. I slip inside each afternoon to observe the progress of construction. This immense creature its woven timbers, planed, adorned, and lacquered, will be 30 cubits tall, or so they tell me. I marvel at such hubris, secretly. Can they believe that the gates will be flung wide to welcome it, that it will not be unmasked for the treachery it is, that its cavernous bowels will not smother the 40 doomed heroes destined to ride within I can foresee the Phrygians, straight alert to the ruse, admitting the beast, towing it onto the marketplace, then setting the torches to it. Can glimpse already the horrified occupants, aflame, screaming, tumbling from its hold, all their spears and machines useless against a firestorm whose savage fury will amaze even mighty Olympus. O Troy! 
I fear that we labor in vain to vanquish you, that your city will yet abide a thousand years, that a thousand wars will not win your demise, that the gods will ensure your fame is celebrated long after untold towns on the great sea's edge are dust. The Achaeans understand nothing of history. They laugh, carouse, their horse grows daily more arrogant. Some nights I weep for the fate that I know attends them. It's a really interesting counter-history, you know, people looking at the potential of a Trojan horse to fail when we all know that it succeeded. Uh, But Yeah. uh, how, How did you imagine this character that, you know, looked at the Trojan horse and thought it was so unrealistic? Yeah, he's a young Greek. I guess he's young. And um, he's had the uh, privilege of being able to observe the construction of, of this beast. And he's, he's sceptical, basically. Uh, he, he doesn't believe that Troy can be conquered. And he thinks that this is a foolish enterprise. Yes, and I, I, it's such an interesting counter-history. I can foresee the Phrygians straight alert to the ruse, admitting the beast, towing it onto the marketplace and setting their torches to it. I mean, there could have been a very different response. It could have been, and I suppose that's part of the point of the poem, perhaps, is the way history can turn one way or the other. You never know which way it'll turn when a great enterprise is being planned. Yes, you don't know. You don't, well, we're all wise after the event. We're all wise after the event. Yeah. Um, and it was deemed perhaps impossible by this observer that the gates of Troy could ever be breached. Yes, well. Now, another poem that uh, imagined taking the first-person voice of a historical identity mm-hmm. is Passarola. Uh, what would you like to say about that? Okay, well, Passarola came out of my trip to Portugal in 2018. I became very interested. I was there for a festival, for a a writing event again, and I became very interested in things Portuguese, literature, language, uh, history, um, and music. And when I got home, I continued my reading. There's some wonderful books written about Um, this particular uh, incident, which I'll tell you more about in a minute. But um, when I I got home, I was reading a little short history of Portugal, and there was a short mention of passarola, which which comes from the word passaro, bird, in Portuguese. And passarola was uh, always considered to be the first lighter-than-air machine, uh, and it preceded by... 74-odd years, the Montgolfier brothers' balloons in France. This happened in 1709 in Lisbon. So um, the person at the heart of this narrative, the first person, is Bartolomeo Guzmão, who, who, was, who was a Jesuit priest and an inventor. He was born in Brazil, which was then a Portuguese colony. He was born in 1685. And he, he came, he eventually, um, he already showed signs of his aptitude for, for, uh, and his creative mind very early on. But he came to Lisbon in his early 20s and he, um, he started working 
on on these ideas that he had. One day he watched a soap bubble rising near a near a candle that was burning, and he and he suddenly had this epiphany that um, perhaps flight of an air flight was possible. But I'm going into the poem now, so perhaps I'll read the poem. Yeah, let's um, do that. I, I should probably mention one one thing. There is an allusion early on to the year he was born, 1685, which was also uh, the year of the birth of um, three very, very famous musicians, um, composers, J.S. Bach, Handel, and Domenico Scarlatti. So they're not mentioned, but they're, uh, they're alluded to. Okay, so I will read Passarola. It's in three parts. One, I was no Icarus, yet I flew too high. It was a week before Christmas that I was born, gazing to heaven, or so the legend went. But it wasn't because I was hearing the call of God or of science, nor, as one scribbler insisted, did I emerge awestruck to be sharing my birth with those three melodious souls across the Atlantic. No, not music was to be my calling. I would quest after an earthlier loftiness, and I would dream. Francisco and Maria, devoted parents, sent me at 15 to the Jesuits at Bahia, but no seminary, no society could contain me. I sailed for Lisbon, blossomed at Coimbra. I read mathematics, physics, philology. I learned languages, mastered the art of memory, and I thought. Already my callow studies in Brazil had hatched a device whereby water could be lifted uphill from a stream my earliest success with levitation. Two, my chance epiphany was a soap bubble I watched floating up in the hot glow of a candle. An object could be made to rise through heat alone. I thought about this. King Zhang listened when I claimed I could make an apparatus walk on air. My first try, a balloon of paper burned before it could fly. Next, a similar contrivance rose 20 palmos before servants destroyed it, lest the palace ceiling be engulfed. But third time lucky, on the 8th of August, in the year of our Lord, 1709, before the king, his queen, Cardinal Conti, our future Pope Innocent, and an astonished court on the patio of the Casa da India, my bird rose until the flame failed and she dropped into the palace square. The first flying machine lighter than air. Our king was hugely impressed, heaped honors upon me, granted me the sole right to build airships with death to any who dared to copy my ideas. Even I thought that last a bit harsh. Three, by combustion, my balloon had raised aloft a metal ball in a basket it was a start. I continued to refine my passarola while drafting other designs. I envisaged a vessel with wings, bellows, a tail, wind tubes, and inflated globes. I conceived a craft built around a pyramid of gas. So much to think of. But stretching for clouds, I had grown too visible. My inventions reached the nose of the Inquisition. I was deemed a heretic. Others called me wizard. Burning my papers, I fled in disguise to Spain. 
hoping for England. It was not to be. Brought low by pernicious fever, I succumbed at Toledo, unready and, alas, too young. Yet consoled by the splendor of my achievement. After all, had I not conquered the miracle of flight three generations before those two upstart French balloonists? And who can reckon how many centuries since ill-starred Icarus? Thank you for bringing that story to us. It's a story I had never heard of. So It's a remarkable story. Yeah. And the Portuguese are very proud of it. Yeah. Now, we're going to run out of time fairly soon, so I'm just wondering if you might like to read the poem about your half-brother. Okay, sure. Um, with a little bit of background that I'd better sketch in. Okay. Um, so my father um, is a, was a Holocaust survivor, as my mother was too, uh, but my father was married before the war and to a woman called Ida, and they had a small child. Now, the small child's name was Alexander, and, of course, it was Skovron. Now, um, and tragically, um, both my father's wife and the boy, who was about one and a half at the time, perished in Auschwitz. My father survived. He was elsewhere. He survived the camps, and he subsequently remarried married my mother, and I was born, and I received the same name. Now, when you see the poem on the page, um, you'll see that it's in memoriam Alexander Skovron, but Alexander is spelled with the K-S, not the X, because that was his Polish spelling of his name, and Skovron is spelled with a W, because that is the, spell, the Polish spelling of Skovron. When we came to Australia, we changed it to a V so that it wouldn't be pronounced uh, Scalron. But that version of the name, Alexander Scovron, is actually the same name that appears on my own certificate, as it happens. So my, I, I wrote this poem in 2012, and I read it to my father a few months before he died at the age of 100. And here it is, to my half-brother. In memoriam, Alexander Skovron, 1942 to 1944. You'd be just about 70 by now. I imagine you walking through the door to announce, Hello, I'm here, your shadow. What would you look like? Like me? Like your mother? I possess one photo of Ida, a family snapshot. She's posed with our father, her parents, her sister, against the edge of a brick wall, some trees behind them. She is lovely, of course, relaxed and contented. He looks confident, handsome. They lean into each other. I wish I could have met her. Absurd, I know, but then I sometimes wish you could have met my mother. Is there a word for the bond that connects you? Some things there are no words for. What were you feeling? thinking on that last walk you took together to the left. Did you cling tightly to your mother's hand? Were you beside each other at the end when the gas came? What final desperate words did you exchange? Some things there are no words for, unknowable. Yet there are moments when I would like to know you. 
Where are you now? In what unthinkable limbo? Our father goes there. The past relives him in the dark. He revisits that galaxy when he sleeps. He has told me you were a beautiful child. I try to picture you, though you never visit my dreams. But I'm glad you're there and proud that I carry your name. If not for you, where would I be now? I mean, if not for the labyrinth, your innocent fate, your little life. And so I speak to you like this. How else can I? Until we meet in some unspeakable realm, look at each other in that timeless, placeless domain, embrace and fall silent. Ghosts of the things we were, phantoms of what might have been and might have not. It's an exquisite poem and thank you very much for for reading it when I imagine it carries so so many emotions. Yes, it's a very personal poem. Yeah, so, um, thank but, you. Um, mm. I'm glad to read it here. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, uh, thank you for coming on the program. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and having me read and speak. So uh, I've enjoyed it very much. Oh, that's good. Great. Well, um, I've been speaking to Alex Govron about his new book, Letters from the Periphery. And my name is Di Cousins, and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.